Welcome to Inflection Points, helping tech leaders navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hine, and in this episode, we speak with advertising industry titan, Sir Martin Sorrell. In part one of my interview, we discuss what he learned from his foundational time at Saatchi and Saatchi, how and why he founded WPP, and we learn about how he identifies the right businesses to acquire. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Points. Sir Martin Sorrell is a titan of the advertising industry. He's been a driving force in the advertising world for over four decades. After working at Saatchi and Saatchi for nearly 10 years, he founded and led the world's largest advertising company, WPP. Sir Martin has continually disrupted the advertising model, adapting to changes in technology and pioneering the integration of creative content and data analytics. After leaving WPP, he founded S4 Capital, a disrupted advertising and marketing services company that combines creativity, data, and technology to help businesses drive growth in the digital age. He's also been knighted by the Queen for services to the advertising industry. Sir Martin, welcome to Inflection Points. Thank you, Joe. Pleasure to be with you. Um, so to dive straight in, your first job was with Saatchi & Saatchi. You joined them in 1975. It, it wasn't my first job, actually. My first so job your first was... job in advertising? Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. You, you say that. Glendening Associates was a marketing consultancy, actually. It was founded by uh, Ralph Glendening, an ex-P&G executive. It was really an advertising and promotions consultancy. So okay. I guess, actually, my roots go back to, to that. But my first real job, I guess, was as CFO or Group Financial Director, I think we called it then, at, uh, at Saatchi. So, you know, I was a consultant uh, with James Gulliver, to Morris and Charles Saatchi, and Morris popped the question and said, would, would I join a CFO, which I did in about, so what was it, about 1978. I worked as a consultant with uh, James for, for Ken Gill, the chairman of Saatchi, Saatchi Gull and Compton, I think it was called then, mm. uh, and then for or Saatchi and Saatchi Compton, and then uh, for Morris and Charles. And, and in looking back, very formative years in, in many different ways um, for the industry as well as for yourself. I mean, yeah. how do you view your time with uh, Maurice and Charles? Well, it was it was a it was a pressure cooker. I think uh, Bruce Wasserstein actually, who was the famous investment banker, you know, known as Bid 'em Up Bruce. Uh, Bruce Wasserstein uh, said, you know, that that Harvard Business School uh, and uh, Sachi and Sachi were pressure cookers that. Uh, created uh, what we what we did so i think there's something in that so i i think a lot to morris and charles because they created an environment there with tim bell and jeremy sinclair and bill muirhead and and others which um really was the the crucible i guess for for what we did in in later years and of course such is at the time um particularly with his work i guess for british airways and the conservative party that's probably what it's most famous for was really a, a, a trailblazer. So, so nothing was impossible, as Morris used to say, or others said that similar. Uh, and that was, I think, the, the pressure cooker or crucible where it all where it all started. So that eight years that I did as CFO at uh, at Sarge's, and then as my dad had uh, suggested, you know, build build a reputation, build a reputation uh, in an industry that you you have fun in in a company that you have fun in. And if you feel like branching out on your own, uh, ha have a go. So, which I did when I, at the ripe old age of 40, when we started uh, wire and plastic products, or we bought into, Preston Rabel and I bought into 
Fire and Plastic Products. It was a quoted shell company. It wasn't a shell, really. It had a manufacturing business, which lasted a number of years, actually, shopping baskets and uh, pots and pans and things. Uh, and we, we built that into, as you said, the, the world's largest, no longer the world's largest. It's now, what, uh, number four, I think, or it's actually a market cap behind Publicis, Omnicom, and IPG, which is very sad, but that's that's the way of way of the world, you know, eb- ebbs and flows. It is the way of the world. Mm. And why do you think there was so much talent came out of Saatchi and Saatchi? Because, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Tim Bell. Uh, you met, there was so, so John Hegarty was on the BBC this morning. I listened to him, you know, kind of all, all came out of, as you said, that crucible um, of Saatchi and Saatchi and went on to do great things and, and, and build great companies. Well, I think it was a uh, an environment. Morris and Charles created an environment there. Uh, Tim, I think those were the three key leaders, but you know, ably supported by others, as you you mentioned, uh, who who pry, who understood the power of of advertising. Uh, they are very different advertising to what we see now, but they understood the power of it and the the power of the creative idea uh, and the power of television. Uh, in creating images not just for for brands, for companies and brands that they own, but also for political figures like Margaret Thatcher. I mean, Tim really led led that, to be fair, but Charles Charles and Morris were very inspirational in what they did uh, in, in in how they developed the business. So I think uh, it was uh, it was an environment, an academy. Um, nothing was impossible. Uh, you could do pretty much what you wanted to do there. It was a very free-ranging environment, as as long as uh, the one the one qualification was as long as you didn't get any external credit for it. So uh, the inter- the credit the credit might be internal, but but it certainly wasn't external. So I, I think you know all credit to to the two of them because they did create you know very much. I mean, I mentioned Ken Gill and Sachi and Sachi Gull and Compton, the original genesis of. Uh, of Sarches really came from that merger between Compton, Compton Advertising or Garland Compton. Yes. Uh, Ken was worried about the creative reputation of Garland Compton. You know, it was a proctor agency. I think it had J&J business and other business in there, but it wasn't very lively. And, of course, Morris and Charles created a great rumpus in the industry because they actually pitched – for clients at, at competitive agencies. I don't think they were members of the IPA, but there was a rule at that time in the IPA that you didn't pitch for fellow members' businesses. Or very least, gentlemanly. Yeah, well, at least officially. I'm sure, you know, under the covers there were there were things going on. But, um, no, that was the, the rule. And they broke that, that shibboleth. They, bought, they broke that rule. And they, they, they pitched for business. They were very aggressive. They weren't members of the IPA. Um, I remember they had that office in uh, in uh, what was it was it not Regent Street but uh, they had the office which was the old Cunard offices which was all front and no back I mean if you went, walked into the offices the great showroom entrance you know on I would say it was on Haymarket wasn't it I think it was on Haymarket yeah and um, you had that great frontage uh, massive reception and you know I think video uh, screens or whatever receptionist and then you went behind and there were all these pokey little offices i remember boom muir's office i think he he had found uh, found a letter in the in one of the drawers basil small piece 
I think it was Sir Basil Smallpiece, who was the chairman of um, of Cunard, and there was a letter which was addressed to Dear Smallpiece, which <laughs> which caused gave us hysterics. Um, so I, no, it was just a very it was a wonderful environment, and and as I say, it was free reign to do things organically and inorganically, and of course we did some daring things from a from a uh, from a merger point of view or acquisition point of view, which in those days were unheard of. I mean, it, I'm just thinking about. You know, watching the coronation and going back, or or you know, think, thinking back to the the American Revolution and uh, the, the 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 wars, and you know the the fact that we lost America in, mm. in a sense. You know, in our industry, uh, we gained America. Yeah. Um, if you think about Sarge's and you think about what we did at WPP, what we did was we reversed the drain or the brain drain, or the we reversed the the order. We reverse the natural order. Madison Avenue was dominant. Mm. And, of course, British advertising uh, through Sarches, through WPP, and indeed others, really have have sort of recaptured that. that, that, that it is now ebbing back now. It's ebbing back to the, U, the U.S. and ebbing back to France. I mean, Publicis is the best-performing holding company yeah. by, by a country mile in terms of organic growth and and margins, and um, then Omnicom, despite, in my view, a lack of strategy, <laughs> seems to manage to get it done on, on a very, a very fragmented, fragmented basis. Um, and then IP, IP, uh, IPG is sort of data driven, yeah, um, uh, to some extent, uh, and has recaptured some of its previous glow because Marion Harper was the godfather of the holding companies in the. 1950s. I mean, people forget that that model is 70 years old. And then, you know, WPP is bringing up the rear really at, at number four by a considerable distance. Let's step back to the beginning of WPP because I'm, I'm quite intrigued as, you know, why you made that that leap. I mean, you said your your father encouraged you to do something you, you loved and then and then if you felt so so inclined to do it by yourself. But what, you know, in the, in the mid 80s, Saatchi and Saatchi had a, had a good head of steam. They were making some material acquisitions. But but that's the point at which you decided to jump ship and, and start WPP by yourself. Well, uh, yes, I got to that grand old age of 40, which I think is a tipping, a tipping point. But, uh, you know, again, in the old days, it's not so I mean, I'm 78 and still working. But the yeah. If you go back to to those days, and I saw it with my father, you know, you started work when you were about twenty. The midpoint was forty. You retired when you were sixty or sixty-five. That was the the game plan. Yeah, not, not in France, but <laughs> but, uh, but generally, and you know, you get to the midpoint. I think forty is. You know, I remember Jeremy Bullmore saying we should put a flag on everybody's computer. You know, uh, three months from their fortieth birthday because it was a very always a restless time where you look back. And you look forward, you say, oh, I'm at a midpoint, what am I going to do? So that's what I really did. I just wanted to have a go mm-hmm. on my own. And um, with Preston Rabel, actually, as a partner, we bought into wire and plastic products. And we saw an opportunity to consolidate in the below-the-line areas, you know, which in those days were rather below the salt. Yes. That's what we used to call it because there was these were areas of the advertising industry that the creative genii looked down on you know they 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 looked down on media they didn't think media was really very important those were the traders like the traders in in investment banks or banks and they looked down on promotion you know um, Mm -hmm. shelf wobblers and design these were all uh you know a real sort of servants to the 
the the the leader, which was TV advertising, which was true in those days, because you know the the sixty second ad was 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 dominant, and TV was the most powerful medium at that time. Mm. Still very powerful. I was talking to somebody in Brazil a couple of days ago, and you or, or you know in Italy, where we, these are countries that still have very strong visual sort of traditions, and where audiences and consumers are attracted emotionally and for for other reasons to to the screen and you see youtube and netflix and the streamers disney and others doing extremely well in these markets and digital screens doing extremely well because the visual communication uh, is is so important so you know there was an opportunity to consolidate below the line and then we then we saw the opportunity around jwt which was drifting i'll I'll come on to that i'll come on to that but I'm intrigued as to, I mean, so in the first two years of WPP, I understand that you bought 18 companies? Yes. How did you manage to do that? I mean, that's a phenomenal rate to, to close. Well, we we, we, did, we did that. I mean, in a way, we've done that the same at, at S4, but it's been a, a, a different a different route, um, a different uh, execution. But the, no, it, it, we did it because we were very aggressive and, uh, Preston Rabel, Robert Lowell, who was our finance director at the time that we were the initial three in the business, um, were, were very keen to try and build a platform. The stock market gave us a very strong rating. We, we bought all those businesses for cash, very different to the S4 approach. Um, and, um, you know, we were very ambitious, particularly below the line. And then, you know, JWT, people forget that um, in 87, JWT had about two-thirds of its business in creative advertising and media mm-hmm. and about a third in companies like Hill and & Knowlton mm-hmm. uh, and, other, and other companies in the group. That, so it made up, it was, you know, a advertising holding company mm-hmm. similar to Ogilvy, similar to Y&R and Gray, which we brought in. All of them quoted companies on the U.S. stock exchange, they were all New York, New York stock exchange listed, yeah, uh, and all had their origins in in the U.S. So it, it's it the their companies actually they were looked at as being creative companies and advertising dominated companies, but they they had significant operations. Why well, I had very it was really fifty fifty. I think at the time we 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 took them over and uh, it was a merger officially, but we we were the dominant partner in a. Two thirds, one third, I think, was merger in two thousand. But they were all companies that really had creative at their core, but had assembled very significant other interests below the line interests, as they were called in those days. So, as you said, Sir Martin, you acquired JWT. Um, it was one of the biggest uh, deals of its time in the advertising industry. It was a hostile deal from what i've understand um the hostility is as james goldsmith jimmy goldsmith said is only hostile to one person that's the ceo <laughs> it's not hostile to the shareholders it's certainly not hostile to the clients it's yeah. not hostile to the good the good people inside the company <laughs> you want to keep but 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 it wasn't all smooth sailing um uh, within sort of six months you were making redundancies and there had been sort of some client losses and uh, and it affected the, the, the well the- we had we had we had the the lord geller um farrago mm-hmm. i guess we should call it where uh, there was a there was a second agency there lord geller um and lord lord led a sort of palace coup 
uh, on the I, they were very famous for the Charles Chaplin uh, advertising mm. um, for IBM and led a coup uh, took some people and tried to take the account mm. and IBM to their credit um, were, were not were not very pleased with that behavior to put it mildly uh, most of the people at IBM I think who would have been involved and complicit in that departed very shortly. And of course, in that was about 1988, if my memory serves you right, it was a year after we did it. And I think in 1992, um, Ogilvy, Shelley Lazarus, Charlotte Beers, myself, uh, recaptured, and it was actually Shelley Lazarus that led that, uh, recaptured, ironically, the IBM account. And we walked back into Armonk. I hadn't, I hadn't been in Armonk for four or five years. So I don't think that's quite true, actually, Joe. I think what we did with what, how you described it, uh, we had uh, actually the, the, the job that we did on, on, on JWT in those early days was pretty good. And whilst it wasn't easy, going back to it, it was, it was more, Ogilvy was more difficult, actually, uh, with, with Ken, Ro- Ken Roman. So it was about two years later. In 89, yeah. yeah. Well, Ogilvy was more difficult because Ken Roman never really got over. Uh, I mean, with, with JWT, John Johnson, who was the CEO, went. And Bert, we brought Bert Manning in, and Bert did a great job, actually, on uh, Jim Patterson was there, the famous author now, was the creative director in New York, and did a, a lot of work globally. And they did very, they did a very good job. Uh, and the rest of JWT, Hill and Knowlton and others, did well too. So I don't think that's quite a fair description. Sure. With Ogilvy in 89, we merged, and, and I made a mistake, Structurally, there because we funded it with JWT, we did half shares, half cash. It was five hundred twenty-five million dollars, half shares, half cash. We found the property in Tokyo, which the JWT management didn't know about. Yeah, and instead of being worth thirty million, and it was Morgan Stanley advised them was the defending banker, and they advised them was worth thirty million, and we sold it for two hundred seven million dollars, <laughs> about the 12, 12 million. So, so that made a huge difference with Ogilvy, which was eight hundred twenty-five million. It was half cash, but it was also a half convertible preferred. And I made a mistake of thinking that convertible preferred was effectively equity. And if equity values fall, of course, it becomes debt. And in those days, uh, preferred dividends were not tax deductible. So I think it was a 6.7% dividend. So in pre-tax terms, it was like 13%. So it was hugely uh, costly. And we had to do a restructuring. Uh, That was the difficult time. So going back to your question, after Ogilvy into the early 90s when there was a recession and a difficult time. So restructuring the business in 91 and 92 with the help of J.P. Morgan, actually, uh, who were the lead, the lead bankers. We never missed a payment, but we had to do two restructurings, actually, debt restructurings. I remember Warren Buffett, Berkshire, buying in, buying into our, into, I think, into our debt and our equity at that time. Uh, and so it was really interesting. Uh, I mean, academically, it was interesting. It was quite painful uh, as a as a. <laughs> as a and then for, in the nineties, and we resumed organic growth and margins. And going back to JWT, the JWT margins were very low. I think it was lowest about seven and a half percent. And I think we doubled the margins there. And we saw the big margin opportunity. That was the opportunity around JWT. With Ogilvy, it was a bit different because there was a natural affinity, although people at JWT and Ogilvy probably didn't believe it. When you looked at the client pattern, Ford, Unilever, the two biggest clients, 
were both common clients for Ogilvy and for JWT. In fact, David Ogilvy uh, and the JWT management, Don Johnson and others, had had, I think it was two sets or maybe three sets of merger discussions prior to us acquiring JWT in 87 and acquiring Ogilvy in 89. So whilst whilst there was obviously David Ogilvy be, before we met was, was not exactly pleasant about me, uh, but once we met and he became chairman of the company, uh, and I read all his books in preparation for the for the meeting with him and could quote them verbatim, uh, he was he was uh, a good friend at that time. And how how did you turn it around? Because that you know he was quite publicly um, you know anti the merger, and, but but yeah, he was chairman for a number of years after the deal. Well, he uh, actually the story is that we in the bear hug letter that we sent to Ken Roman, we knew there was antipathy between Ken and. And David Ogilvy, they didn't like one another, and um, and they at its heart. I mean, on the surface, yes, but uh, the appearance in the bear hug letter, I had proposed to, to David, which was a, as chairman of the company, we'd writ, written to him. Uh, sorry, to, to Ken Roman as as chairman and CEO, we'd written to him in the bear hug letter. The last paragraph offered David Ogilvy the chairmanship of the combined company, and. Ken had sent that letter to to uh, David, and had omitted omitted the last paragraph. And when I met David uh, for the first time, I met him in a hotel in New York uh, with our lawyers. I think it was, and and his lawyers. Uh, we we sat down and we we talked generally. And then I said, "Well, did you see our letter?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Did you see the last paragraph?" And he, said, and he said, yes. And he told me what the last paragraph was, and it wasn't the last paragraph. <laughs> the last paragraph was the they had admitted to, to, from the letter that, 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 which offered him the chairmanship. Uh, and, and so we, we, we really sort of capitalized that on that, that, that personal dynamic. And, um, you know, David, uh, it was actually extremely helpful. He wrote an, an apology ad. My first apology, which I still have in my study at home, <laughs> uh, we never it never saw the light of day because we thought it was too too long after it, the, the copy was delivered too late. But um, it was his first public apology. Wow! Probably his first and only public apology. I don't think he ever issued another one. So. <laughs> they're 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 very uncommon. But I wanted I wanted to move on to the 1990s that you referred to. I mean, it was a difficult time. There, there was a recession, and you know, as you said, you, well, uh, well, that, the early 90s, the the, sure. the 90s as a whole were very strong years. We actually built a very strong yeah, year. yeah. I beg your pardon. So the early 90s, and you know, and, and kind of there has been various moments in in your career and in, in in WPP where there's there's challenges as there are in any business. But how do you personally sort of maintain? Focus and positivity when when the chips are stacked against you. Well, it's it's very difficult. It's not it's not easy, and I, I mean I think um, times today are, are, are tough, mm. and we're going through economically. It's a very I, I know we're at a sort of tipping point. I was at a conference yesterday, JP Morgan conference yesterday, listening to other people give their views, and it's interesting because we are. It, the next few years are going to be very different to the last, you said, four decades. I calculate it's five decades that that I've been involved in business. I mean, it, it goes back to probably 1983, to be fair, to Ted Levitt's article in the Harvard Business Review about globalization, his basic thesis. And he, he admitted before he died that 
he'd over egged the pudding to make the point. Mm. But he basically said consumers would consume everywhere in the same way in the same way. And whilst that was, you know, putting it extremely, that was probably directionally true. Globalization, free trade. You know, I tried to study economics at university. And uh, you know, remember those supply demand models had conditions about free trade, no tariffs, no barriers, taxes, no taxes, minimum taxes. All of those those forces over those years from the eighties, so so call it over the last forty years or so, have been trying to build a much more integrated and less fragmented world. And I think we're now going into a world which is going to be much more fragmented. As somebody put it yesterday, uh, he, he said more regional. I, I think it's probably even more than that. I mean, I think I agree with that. I mean, it's now North and South America are going to be the most important force in the world together with the Asian, Asian pillar. I'll come on to that in a second. So North and South America, the Middle East, maybe parts of Africa, I'm I'm a little bit less bullish on Africa because of the volatility. But you know, talking to one of our clients on Friday, you know, he was talking about the merits of uh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, South Africa, and and other African countries because of their population mass. But the Middle East, huge, huge opportunity again on a smaller scale, and then Asia, with the big China issue being about. You know what's going to happen over Taiwan, sure. and if clients have big businesses, the one I was speaking to on Friday as a smaller business, it's about under ten percent of their sales. And you know, if you're looking at worldwide rating, China should be about twenty percent of your business, and they'll build their business. So companies that have big positions in China will probably be a little bit more nervous. So, but the basic point is, China, India, going to be the big beneficiary of Chinese Chinese security issues over Taiwan. Uh, Vietnam, Indonesia. Indonesia will be a top five economy by 2050. Yeah. Uh, Philippines, Thailand, all these guys. So, the, so it's going to be a much more fragmented. Now, going back to the 80s and going back to JWT, Ogilvy, YNR in 2000, Gray in 2004, 2005, they were no-brainers because the, the world, you know, there are two buckets. One is a geographical bucket. One's a technology bucket. Yeah. And geographically, it made huge sense to plant your flag in population-dense, growing economies, developing economies. Mm -hmm. And actually today, which people really don't understand, if you look at the G7 and the E7, so the G7 are the seven mature economies developed, the E7 are the seven major developing economies, and you compare the total GDP of G7, E7, E7, E7 is bigger. If you strip out China from the E7 and the US from the G7, the G the E6 is still bigger than the G6. What does that tell you? It tells you that the world is changing. And when you see China negotiating, you know, an Iranian Saudi uh, rapprochement, right, or uh, treaty, or, or bringing them together. The world order is changing. America is not going to be as dominant, and the West is not going to be a dominant, whether they like it or not. And so you are going to have a bipolar, you can call it G2, maybe even a G3. India is coming up fast on the rail. So it's a very different world, and, and the decisions you make today are very different to the decisions that we made in 87, in 89, in 2000, and 2004. 
So Martin, I mean, I, I'm amazed how you managed to uh, and uh, change a question about focus and positivity to what about geopolitics? <laughs> the was being the answer. No, no, but that, but that's the that's that's the answer. You know, you there's there's bags of opportunity out there. Even when I mean, the, the, it's a I think that the the right you know technologically, okay, you know, in in '97 when we sort of first started to really look at the internet at uh, WPP, you know, there's an HBR interview in, I think, in 1997 where we really talked about it. That was a threat to the business, right? But then a huge opportunity. I mean, people forget, you know, people always talk about the, the agency holding companies being disin, disintermediated. You know, I used to call them frenemies. Um, they aren't. They're, they're much more partners than they were frenemies, actually, to be fair. Interesting. Who are the biggest buyers of inventory for the tech platforms? The ad holding companies, right? Yeah. So it's a huge alliance. Now, AGI and AI poses, in my view, the same, a similar threat. Whereas the platforms could not go direct to clients historically because they would build because they would have build up a workforce, you know, because they're capital-intensive yep. businesses, not labor-intensive businesses. That's gone now. With AGI and with AI, you will be able to create ads and distribute them dig digitally and linearly and, and on analog media through uh, an AGI platform. And that will result, you know, I, I think the holding companies employ maybe it's 400,000 people in media planning and buying. That will, that will undermine those networks because they're you know, what would you rather have a 25 year old media planner and buyer or an algorithm that you can check that's our role we'd be checking it you can check the research you can do it in an iterative way you don't have to make you know spend three months in various locations around the world creating the ads you know the unreal engine gave us that epic games Fortnite unreal engine gave us that facility to be able to do it now with agi it's even more even quicker. I mean, we're seeing productivity gains already, which is huge. So the answer to your question about how do you deal with adversity is that out of every sort of action, there is a reaction or every adversity, there is a thing. So it, it is an answer to your question. That's how you deal with it. Perfect. People often mention your name in, in terms of when talking about leadership, but I mean, who do you admire as a leader? Well, I love my dad, actually. I, I, you, these are people you wouldn't, you wouldn't have... Um, my dad, I thought, was a good leader. The but I was probably subjective about it. I what, think, what What are the qualities that you saw in in, in your father? What? Well, it's the same with Arnold Weinstock and Jules Thorne. I mean, the, these are people that today people would, would not recognise. Um, obviously, in today's environment, Buffett, Musk. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go back to Steve Jobs. Tim Cook has done a, a, an amazing job. I mean, Satya Nadella, Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. Steve Ballmer in his way, a different way, uh, Satya Nadella. I mean, th these are companies that have done, you know, you look at what Larry and Sergey did at uh, Google, what Shundar is doing now with Google. I mean, these are, you look at what, what's happening at Meta and what Mark Zuckerberg has done. I mean, th these are all people who've done and who pivot. You know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg came in for huge criticism. Uh, and has now changed, you know, year of efficiency and everything. But, you know, he has refocused the company in a very different way, a very different way to what it was historically. So these are, but, but I go back to Weinstock and Thorne. 
um, you know, Weinstock was sort of different. Uh, you know, he married the boss's daughter, um, <laughs> built <laughs> with an immensely talented man who built um, what's originally called Radio and Allied into GC, admitted he was too cautious, actually. He conserved too much cash, believed in uh, did joint ventures. I remember talking to him before he died, and I said, what, what regret do you have? And he said he felt he was too conservative, conserved too much cash, and that he had done joint ventures, and joint ventures don't work. 50-50 deals don't work. Somebody has to be uh, in control. Um, Jules Thorne was an emigre from, from the Holocaust in uh, Vienna. Uh, in Austria, came to to the UK, I think in 38, started a lighting factory in Enfield. So what do I admire? I mean, you know, starting with nothing and building up, they, those two people did it in different ways, as I said, but both immensely talented and intelligent and um, built businesses, major businesses, listed businesses that were in their industry dominant. Attention to the detail, um, application, hard work, you know, because it doesn't come by being a dilettante. You, you know, I, I've seen it before. I saw it with Morris and Charles. Actually, you know, you, you can't delegate uh, at the at the end. It, it always ends up uh, in difficulties. I think you have to be involved and be a part of it and under, understand what's going on. So I think those are some of the qualities. And you know, the the answer is you know, having a strategy, having a vision. And then being able to structure it and implement it. And it's not easy. Not easy at all. No. If it was easy, easy, everybody would do it. Exactly. SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies, and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine, and you've been listening to Inflection Points. <laughs>